Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. When we last left off, Oishi and the 46 other ronin were plotting revenge on Kira, the noble whom they blamed for causing the death of their master, Asano. When we last left them, they had taken about two years off between their master's death and their revenge to hide out, to provide cover, to disguise themselves as merchants, beggars, and destitute men, so Kira would not foresee their attack coming. It's time to put their plan into action, and, just like the last episode, I want to put it out there that this is mainly legend, and that the actual historical facts of this matter are mostly unknown. The primary sources of the 47 Ronin incident are scattered mentions, news items, temple records, that sort of things. But the narrative beats of this story, and the thing that make this story compelling for audiences of all kinds of media, are fictionalized. So what I'm going to be getting into is about 25% history and 75% legend. And just like last time, I'm going to be drawing on and quoting from A.B. Mitford's Tales of Old Japan, the first ever English language account of the 47 Ronin story. Uh, Mitford's account is entertaining, but I think that it was embellished a lot, and when he was writing, he was drawing from existing Japanese fiction. But more on that later. And still another thing that I want to emphasize is that this story, it's unusual. Uh, the revenge that they're about to take, either legally or traditionally, in Japan. In Confucian ethics, there was precedent for taking revenge on behalf of a family member, your father, your son, your wife, your child, etc. But there was not precedent, legal or otherwise, for taking revenge on behalf of lords or employers. They drew upon the writings of a Confucian scholar named Yamaga Soko to invent an ethical justification for their actions. Essentially, interpreting uh, the parts of Confucianism that said it was okay to take revenge for your dad to also extend to your lord. Now, that was an unusual and kind of out-there reading of Confucian ethics. So, keep that in mind. Oishi and his guys are... They are not doing something that samurai used to do on a regular basis. They are doing something fairly unique. But on with the story. Oishi, the oldest ronin, his various guys, they've been scattered to the winds, they've been hanging out, they've been carefully plotting revenge, and now it's time to put that all into action. Quoting Mitford's Tales of Old Japan again, It was now midwinter the twelfth month of the year, and the cold was bitter. One night, during a heavy fall of snow, when the whole world was hushed and peaceful men were stretched in sleep upon the mats, the ronin determined that no more favorable opportunity could occur for carrying out their purpose. Oishi Kuronosuke addressed the band and said, Tonight we shall attack our enemy in his palace. His retainers will certainly resist us, and we shall be obliged to kill them. But to slay old men and women and children is a pitiful thing. Therefore, I pray you, each one, to take great heed, lest you kill a single helpless person. His comrades all applauded the speech, and so they remained waiting for the hour of midnight to arrive. When the appointed hour came, the ronin set forth. Unquote. 
Mitford and other storytellers who recount this tale go out of their way to have the Ronin informing the various neighbors that, hey, they're going to be assaulting Kira's residence. Uh, don't worry about it, guys. We're not here for you. They also have the Ronin taking care not to kill hapless civilians and waiting for the dramatic hour of midnight. And that's a nice touch, but I kind of sort of doubt its authenticity just a little bit. However, that makes it a better story. The role of the Ronin in this story is not necessarily to be people. The role of the Ronin in this story are to be paragons of a certain kind of ethical system and virtue system. And here they are, oh so perfectly embodying that by saying, hey guys, we're only going to kill the people that we need to. What follows is Mitford's recounting of the battle in Kira's residence. And this is a long quote, and again, I question whether any of it really happened this way. But this is a pretty good encapsulation of the kind of pop culture version of the fight between the 47 Ronin and Kira's various retainers. Quote, Ten of Kotsuke no Suke's retainers, again, Midford uses Kira's title as opposed to his name, having heard the noise, woke up, and drawing their swords, rushed into the front room to defend their master. At this moment, the Ronin, who had burst open the front door of the front hall, entered the same room. Then arose a furious fight between the two parties, in the midst of which Chikara, leading his men through the garden, broke into the back of the house. Now, in this version of the tale, Mitford has Chikara, one of the 47 Ronin, going around from the backyard, and Oishi coming in from the front, so they're doing kind of a pincher attack, and Chikara and Oishi are going to meet in the middle. Going back to Mitford. Kotsuke no Suke, in terror of his life, took refuge with his wife and female servants in a closet in the veranda, while the rest of his retainers, who slept in the barrack outside the house, made ready to go to the rescue. But the ronin who had come in by the front door, and were fighting with the ten retainers, ended by overpowering and slaying the latter without losing one of their own numbers, after which, forcing their way bravely towards the back room, they were joined by Chikara and his men, and the two bands were united in one. By this time, the remainder of Kotsuke no Suke's men had come in, and the fight became general. And Kuronosuke no Suke, that's Oishi, sitting on a camp stool, gave his orders and directed the ronin. Soon the inmates of the house perceived that they were no match for their enemy, and they tried to send out intelligence of their plight to Uyesugi-sama, their lord's father-in-law, begging him to come to the rescue with all the force at his command. But the messengers were shot down by the archers, whom Kuronosuke had posted on the roof, so no help coming, they fought in despair. Then Kuronosuke cried out with a loud voice, Kotsuke no Suke alone is our enemy. Let some go inside and bring him forth dead or alive. Now, in front of Kotsuke no Suke's private room, stood three brave retainers with drawn swords. The first was Kobayashi Heihachi, the second was Waku Hendayu, and the third was Shimizu Ikaku, all good men and true and expert swordsmen. So stoutly did these men lay about them, that for a while they kept a hold of the ronin at bay, and at one moment, when Oishi Kuronosuke saw this, he ground his teeth with rage and shouted to his men, What? Did not every man of you swear to lay down his life avenging his lord, and now you are driven back by three men? Cowards not fit to be spoken to. To die fighting in a master's cause should be the noblest ambition of a retainer. Then, turning to his own son Shikara, he said, Here, boy, engage those men, and if they are too strong for you, die. Spurred by these words, Chikara seized a spear and gave battle to Waku Handayu, 
but could not hold his ground, and, backing by degrees, was driven out into the garden, where he missed his footing and slipped into a pond. But, as Handayu, thinking to kill him, looked down into the pond, Chikara cut his enemy in the leg and caused him to fall, and then, crawling out of the water, dispatched him. In the meanwhile, Kobayashi Heihachi and Shimizu Ikaku had been killed by the other ronin, and of all Kotsuke no Suke's retainers, not one fighting man remained. Chikara, seeing this, went with his bloody sword in his hand into a back room to search for Kotsuke no Suke, but he only found a son of the latter, a young lord named Kira Sahioye, who, carrying a halberd, attacked him, but was soon wounded and fled. Thus the whole of Kotsuke no Suke's men, having been killed, there was an end to the fighting, but as yet there was no trace of Kotsuke no Suke to be found." Unquote. It is a story beat that's probably too perfect to be true that Kira, the decadent noble who was an etiquette teacher at the shogun's court, had secluded himself in a small room with his wife and various female servants. That little detail makes Kira into a coward, not embodying any old-style samurai nobility such as bravery or sacrifice or anything like that, and it emasculates him which I think is either a conscious or unconscious choice by people who repeat the story. And when they find him, they entreat him to die with some degree of honor. They want him to commit seppuku, so that would absolve him of what they see as the shame he has brought upon himself for causing the death of their master Asano. So when they find him, this is how Mitford describes the interaction between Oishi, his ronin, and the cornered Kira. Quote, Oishi Kuronosuke went down on his knees and, addressing the old man very respectfully, said, My lord, we are the retainers of Asano Takumi no Kami. Last year your lordship and our master quarreled in the palace, and our master was sentenced to Harikiri, and his family was ruined. We have come tonight to avenge him, as is the duty of faithful and loyal men. I pray your lordship to acknowledge the justice of our purpose. And now, my lord, we beseech you to perform Harikiri. I myself shall have the honor to act as your second, and when, with all humility, I shall have received your lordship's head, it is my intention to lay it as an offering upon the grave of Asano Takumi no Kami. Thus, in consideration of the high rank of Kotsuke no Suke, the ronin treated him with the greatest courtesy, and over and over again entreated him to perform Harikiri. But he crouched, speechless and trembling. At last, Kuronosuke, seeing that it was vain to urge him to die the death of a nobleman, forced him down and cut off his head with the same dirk, Mitford's referring to his wasakashi, his curved Japanese short sword, with which Asano Takumi no Kami had killed himself. Then the forty-seven comrades, elated at having accomplished their design, placed a head in a bucket and prepared for departure. But before leaving the house, they carefully extinguished all the lights and fires in the place, lest by any accident a fire should break out and the neighbors suffer." Unquote. And wow, so much to unpack here. First off, poor Kira. Uh, put yourself in this guy's position. He is an etiquette teacher at the Shogun's Court at Edo. He has this nice gig going where he teaches people arbitrary, invented, you know, things of etiquette. And one day, he's just doing his job. Some yokel from Ako, you know, an area a bit southeast of modern-day Osaka, doesn't know the rules, doesn't bribe him right, gets angry, and cuts to dude. And then, after he gets assaulted, after he gets cut, and suddenly he's the bad guy in the eyes of these men with swords who are attacking his house. I 
kind of sort of feel bad for the dude. In this narrative, Mitford had him earlier uh, belittling Asano and making him bend down and tie his shoe just because he could. Mitford and other authors do paint Kira as the kind of guy who has a tiny, tiny little bit of authority and then abuses it. So he does seem like a jerk, but I don't think he is the, you know, deserving to have his head cut off kind of jerk. And also, at the end of this, Mitford and other authors goes out of his way to have these vengeance-filled, violent, masterless samurai turn off all the lights, extinguish all the lanterns and candles, so that, you know, Kira's house doesn't burn down. So even as they're breaking and entering and killing people, they're making sure that they do not inadvertently commit arson. Isn't that nice of them? True to their word, the ronin took Kira's head to Asano's grave at a shrine called Sengakuji. They presented the severed head as an offering to their dead master, and then they presented themselves to the monks of the shrine, announced what they had done, and they were promptly taken into custody by the authorities. The ronin were held for seven weeks while various government officials debated about what to do with them. And eventually the shogunate decided that breaking into somebody's house, killing people, and then cutting off a dude's head, while it maybe had the veneer of a certain kind of virtue, while it had the veneer of loyalty, uh, it was an unsanctioned vendetta, and that breaking, entering, and homicide uh, had to be punished. The ronin were ordered to commit seppuku, just as their lord Asano had done. On March 2nd, 1703, 46 of the 47 ronin stabbed themselves in the abdominal region with a short sword, died, and were buried at the Sengakuji temple along with their master Asano. One of the ronin, who had been sent away as a messenger and had not taken part in the attack, was spared this fate. The graves of the ronin and Asano still exist at Sengakuji temple today. So, how do we know about any of this? Where does this story come from? Throughout this episode, and the last, I constantly said that this whole thing was more legend than fact. This did really happen. The 47 Ronin incident did take place. Asano and his retainers, and Kira, they were real people. But the actual details elude us. Again, the primary sources are sparse, and sources dramatizing and providing narrative shape to this story, those are numerous. And those dramatic and pop culture and narrative accounts of this incident go back, supposedly, to less than two weeks after this incident actually happened. So 47 guys breaking into a dude's house, getting into a fight with his samurai, winning, killing all his samurai without losing a man, then ransacking the guy's house, finding him, cutting his head off, and then laying a severed head at their dead master's grave? Well, that's dramatic to say the least. And the 47 Rome and rumor and gossip began to spread throughout the Akko region about this. And supposedly, a mere 12 days after this happened, there was a fictionalized version of the 47 Ronin story that appeared on local kabuki stages. It was called Akebano Soga no Yoichi, or The Attack at Dawn by the Soga. And it did not tell the story of Asano and Kira and Oishi and the rest of the Ronin. No, instead, it ostensibly told an ancient story of the Soga brothers who exacted revenge on a guy for reasons. But the narrative of the Soga story bore strong resemblance to more current events. So it was about history, but 
everyone at the time would have been able to see the similarity between a historical story and the present. Uh, they would be able to figure out pretty quickly that it was just a veiled reference to current events, kind of like how The Crucible was really about McCarthyism, that sort of thing. Um, unfortunately for fans of history, folklore, and Japanese theater, the authorities shut down the play pretty quickly, and no extant copies of the script of Akebano Sogano Yuichi survive. If this play happened at all, which it might not have, it is conceivable that a dramatization of the event showing up so quickly could be hyperbole. But if you look at a timeline of fictionalized versions of the 47 Ronin story, that is how most standard timelines tell it. This soga play happening right after the actual event. And a few other dramas popped up here and there offering similar fictionalized accounts of the tale. But the biggest blockbuster of the 47 Ronin story, it wouldn't be a kabuki drama, and it wouldn't be a no production. It would be a bunraku show in 1748. That's right, the biggest, most successful pop culture version of the 47 Ronin story. So again, 1748, it was a bunraku production called Kandehan Chushingura, and it was a fictionalized version of the 47 Ronin story. Fictionalized to the point where the characters had entirely different names, and there's this whole romantic subplot that seems to have been made up because the writers wanted to add in a bit of pizzazz to the proceedings. And this one, unlike the other 47 Ronin plays, which seem to have been churned out like so many based-on-true-events TV movies, this one had staying power. This is the one that got remade and reproduced again and again and again in Kandehan Chushingura. It was adapted for the Kabuki stage, which was unusual at the time, for a Bunraku production. So it was literally a multimedia event in the middle 1700s. And its name, Chushingura, is now synonymous for the whole genre of fiction about the 47 Ronin. So if you were a person in the middle-late 1700s who wanted to see some kind of 47 Ronin play or puppet show, well, your local kabuki theater or puppet theater probably would have had some version of the story playing at the time. It apparently put a lot of butts in seats. And according to Henry D. Smith, the Columbia historian whom I quoted in the last episode, he also notes that by the late 1700s, this thing had become so pervasive and so popular and so repeated that it inspired another subgenre of comedies, send-ups, inversions, and parodies of the story. For instance, the 47 Ronin, they're often referred to as the loyal retainers, and some parody plays told the story of the disloyal retainers, that is, a Sanu samurai who decided that Vengeance looked sort of inconvenient and decided to instead get different jobs or have hijinks or do comical pratfalls or that kind of thing. So this genre in this story was so popular that parodies of it became a subgenre unto themselves. And on top of that, storytellers and entertainers began to spin tales purported to be biographies of the individual samurai involved in the incident. One of the kind of narratively convenient parts of this story is that you have a 22-month period between Asano's execution and the 47 Ronin's revenge on Kira. That is a big chunk of time in which you can have a large cast of characters wandering around, doing adventures, going on side quests, and doing stuff that doesn't contradict established continuity. 
it kind of reminds me about how in Star Wars, um, between the horrible prequel Attack of the Clones and between the other horrible prequel uh, Revenge of the Sith, you have the Clone Wars. And Lucasfilm put an entire cartoon series called Clone Wars between those two movies, filling in the gaps, having the characters do you know, side quests before the big end that we all knew was coming happened. Uh, and the individual stories about the specific Ronin, it also seems to resemble the stories about part particular Arthurian knights. There was a big cast of characters in Camelot, and you have a lot of opportunities for them to go off and have spin-off titles. And it's kind of a tie-in to what people already know about. Or comic book characters having solo series that spin off from the main narrative. Back in the episode where I compared Arthurian legend to comic books, I said you could have you know, Wolverine and Storm being part of the X-Men, then they go off and have their own side adventure in their own side title, and then they come back and they join the X-Men again and do stuff with the main team. The 47 Ronin narrative kind of turned into that, with narratives about the individual samurai being the solo series or spin-offs or Clone Wars cartoon in the big chunk of time that the main narrative skips over. Anymore, Chushingura, the name of that smash hit Bunraku production refers to the body of plays, stories, books, films, comics, and puppet shows all about the 47 Ronin. And it's fascinating that an incident that we don't really have a lot of hard information about sparked so much popular fiction. But I think that might also be a feature, not just a bug. I think one of the reasons why this incident sparked so much popular fiction is because we don't actually know the truth. We don't know the details. It's not like we can just read Oishi's diary. It's not like we can read Asano's notes to himself. It's not like we can read Kira's diary. It's not like we can go back and find the one true word of God definitive version of this story. No, if you want the story, you have to embellish. You have to fictionalize. You have to fill in the gaps yourself, and I think that's what makes it so appealing. That the facts are incomplete, it's necessarily a legend about these samurai embodying some, at the time, old, maybe even extinct, ideal of samurai virtue and loyalty, and lashing out against a newer, stricter shogunate, and striking a blow for an imagined, idealized, and even non-existent past. If you have questions, comments, anything like that, uh, get a hold of me on Facebook, facebook.com slash interestingtimeswithjoestreckert, or Good iTunes. Leave an iTunes review. I do read those. Uh, give us a review. Give us a rating. And tell me what you think. Uh, this show, it is ad-free and independent and entirely supported by you, the listeners. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com, uh, click on Support Interesting Times on Patreon, and give us a few bucks every month. I'm also on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. I'm on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. I'm great at naming my social media. Thank you very much for listening. Be back next week with something where nobody dies.